0: Okay, we are live hi this is william ramsey welcome to william ramsey investigates on today's show i have a very special guest his name is nathan stoltzfus and he is a professor of holocaust studies in the arts and sciences and professor of history at florida state university and he published a book in august 2021 the title of the book is or he's the editor of this book the title is the power of populism and people resistance and protest in the modern world and he is also the author of Hitler's Compromises published 2016 and Resistance of the Heart Intermarriage and the Rosenstrasse Prod- Protest in Nazi Germany published 1996 1996 and was a co-recipient of the Institute of Contemporary History's Frankel Prize and acknowledged as a new statesman book of the year he is also the co-editor with Robert Galateli of Social Outsiders in Nazi, Nazi Germany, 2001, and with Hen- Henry Friedlander of Nazi Crimes and the Law, 2008. But again, the title of this book just published is The Power of Populism and People, Resistance and Protest in the Modern World, and it's Professor Nathan Stoltzfus. So Nathan Stoltzfus, are you there?
1: Thank you very much. I'm okay, happy well. to be here. Great. Well, thanks for agreeing Thank to the, the
0: interview. Podcast. Excellent. It's kind of a broadcast, but it is a podcast. Mostly most of my stuff goes on out uh, on audio. For people who may not have heard of your background, can you talk kind of about uh, what you've written about and what led you to, to compile this book, The Power of Populism and People?
1: Okay, so in graduate school, I met a professor who was uh, very interested. I studied with a range of professors. One was uh, Joseph Nye, who has used the term soft power to refer to uh, power that doesn't come out of the barrel of a gun. I also studied with uh, Gene Sharp, who was a kind of guru of of, uh, uh, what he called nonviolent sanctions. That is, uh, things that didn't destroy property or people, and yet still uh, had a way of exerting power. Now, uh, collectivity is a key part. A collective action of, uh, of of certainly the nonviolent sanctions. The theory is that uh, any leader uh, needs, to some extent, the cooperation and consent of the people who uh, that leader claims to rule. Uh, of course, uh, Joseph Nye's idea of soft power includes uh, ideas about diplomacy, etc. But uh, collective uh, action is is the notion that's especially relevant since the French Revolution, notions that uh, people have to have a say in their government. And uh, I got involved with this uh, uh, idea about uh, the book that you mentioned that uh, W.W. Norton published in 96 called the Rosenstrasse protests and sent of the were uh, married to a non-Jew. And uh, how did it happen that they survived? Certainly it was impossible that the Nazis were fond of them because uh, In Nazi Germany, the uh, Nazis did not look uh, kindly on that at all, uh, defiling the race. Uh, And of course, they were uh, no way to promote the Nazi idea that Jews were so inferior and so different that they weren't really human and that they didn't belong in Germany, and had to be uh, shoved out. Uh, so it certainly wasn't, uh, they were actually pr- particularly loathsome Jews, not uh, particularly uh, welcomed. So the question was, why did they survive? And uh, it's a particular set of circumstances having to do with Hitler's peculiar sensitivity to his image and the uh, the fact that his image in Nazi Germany was the glue that held the consensus that held people behind him, the image of him. And because of uh, this image, uh, Hitler had refused to get into specifics of controversies, tried to remain above it all. If there was controversy, that uh, those different points of controversy could be uh, directed. Directed or blamed on his subordinates, not Hitler himself. And uh, it, it led to, uh, of course, I'm talking about the rule within the Reich, Hitler's own race. Outside of the Reich, there was no limits on the use of, of force and violence and brutality, uh, but uh, the occupation of other countries during war, the genocide of the Jews, the horror within that the, the regime used within the the Third Reich. So uh, there there are a set of circumstances there. The regime certainly never intended that these intermarried Jews in Germany would actually escape murder and genocide, but uh, a set of circumstances was kept evolving so that uh, uh, the regime depended on the uh, deportation of the intermarried Jews.
0: Nathan, can you hear me?
1: I'm sorry. Can you hear me now?
0: Yeah, you came back. My suggestion is let's stop the camera and see, just go on pure audio. So if you can stop the cam, uh, it might help with the... The latency. Well,
1: actually, what happened was that my um, my my router changed, uh, and so um, yeah, sure, I'm fine with this.
0: Okay, let's. Okay, you want you think it's going to come back? Okay, because I lost you for about thirty seconds. So you were talking. I think where you where you left off was how did the Jews survive who intermarried, and Hitler was very sense more sensitive or policies within Germany than in conquered territories or other countries, right?
1: Exactly, Hitler Hitler wanted to, to transform society in Germany so that the people themselves embraced national socialism so that they became Nazis and acted like Nazis even if nobody was looking at them and that they were from the inside out. And uh, uh, he had this, uh, This principle that the mass movement that he started should never lose momentum. He wanted that to keep spreading, whether deepening or widening, that uh, people would be actually continually becoming more convinced. In other words, uh, he, he, he realized that he couldn't do anything without the people uh, and that he wanted them to have unquestioning consent. And how he tried to get that, most of all, was to show the Germans that what he was doing was giving them what they wanted better than any other leader or system, that Nazism was really the key for them to get what they wanted.
0: Right, and I think you wrote in your intro that he actually shut down other public gatherings to ensure that only the Nazis would, and the and the uh, the populist or the popular polity would get National Socialist ideas instead of communist or uh,
1: exactly. other. Exactly, and uh, actually, uh, the communists were prohibited from any public protest within a day or two of when uh, he was named Chancellor. Uh, within uh, short weeks of when uh, he became chancellor, there was a prohibition on any public gatherings that uh, were not organized by the Nazi party. In other words, uh, he is pioneering this new prohibition that autocrats uh, uh, and ban and punishment of, of popular protests and public protests that that autocrats today are just as concerned with as repression of the media they see popular protest uh, not only as a way of expressing opinion but as a, as a visual these uh, autocrats uh, including hitler are very sensitive to to image and to optics and they want to control that, to manage that, so that it looks like they have a consensus and that there isn't dissent. And it's just as important for them to to ban and prohibit popular gatherings and protests as it is for them to ban the free press. Right.
0: And so you can see kind of those same, Hitler's probably a very extreme autocratic symbol, but those similar themes are interpenetrator or are go through 20th century after Hitler to the present, correct?
1: Well, exactly. Now, there are, of course, differences uh, between Hitler and autocrats today, uh, very important ones. I, when I talk about Hitler pioneering popular autocracies, I'm talking about the attention he paid to optics, the, of course, um, the uh, the The importance to him of of popular support and uh, his uh, role as the image of what the country was. Of course, uh, one major difference is that uh, Hitler was uh, didn't allow other parties unlike uh, Erdogan in Turkey, or Orban in Hungary. Uh, he did, however, have these plebiscites, which were carefully orchestrated, like so many other things, uh, in the wake of some of uh, Hitler's uh, achievements, like the uh, remilitarization of the Rhineland. There would be a big propaganda push, and then three weeks later, uh, and, and a uh, question: Yes or no? Do you approve of Hitler? So he was very interested in, in, in popular opinion, but did not allow parties and the vote. Uh, one of the differences uh, that happened throughout the 20th century is how, how widespread the belief in democracy and the hope of uh, widespread democratic governments uh, became so that, uh, Uh, autocrats today pay more attention to that, at least initially. In fact, uh, as opposed to a traditional model for explaining the rise of autocracy, that is a coup d'etat, the old model, take over by force of arms. Today, leaders at uh, various stages of advancing their dictatorship or autocracy have come to power through democratic institutions. And that's a way that Hitler also uh, illustrated and led the way they're pioneering uh, how you come to power, not through a coup d'etat, but through the institutions of the constitution. But as soon as you get there, uh, these men like Hitler uh, crippled democratic institutions they used to come to power, the guardrails of democracy, especially media, the judiciary. So they take mass opinion into account. That's certainly the reason that Hitler wanted to come to power by a mass movement uh, rather than a uh, coup d'etat, is that he wanted real authority. He wanted to convince the people that, in fact, uh, to show the people that they had really made the right decision with him.
0: Right. So he actually went through the putsch, 1924 jail. Landsberg prison, and then comes out and says, I'm now a man of the law and I'm gonna go through all this positive. But like you said, so he gets into power, starts making shifts. I mean, that's similar to some of these other states today, kind of like China and Turkey, right? Where uh, they got into power and then they make sure that any alternate views are suppressed, right?
1: Right, and in fact though, if you look at some of uh, Hitler's earliest writings, starting in 1920, we know so little of him before 1919, 1920. He's already talking about a mass movement, and uh, and, a, and a dictator. Uh, but uh, the 1923 coup is always given credit for having changed his mind. Although he, some say that he was talked into that uh, coup attempt by the SA. In any case. Uh, he had something to fall back on when that failed. That is this idea of mass movement. Now, of course, uh, Hitler also used political violence to the any extent that he could that achieved his ends. And so do the dictators today. I think especially uh, China has just illustrated how civil resistance can be absolutely crushed. And it's a tragedy, of course, uh, that uh, Civil resistance often doesn't have allies. In Myanmar, uh, US companies uh, benefiting or profiting from the dictatorship uh, ally with the uh, oppressive tyrants rather than with the poor civilians trying to protest. So uh, many people will look at uh, civilian protest and say, it doesn't work, let's forget about it, it's all or nothing but they don't expect the same from other tactics that are also always proximate and never uh, always uh, going to win. <clears throat> now, uh, these uh, dictators realize an old uh, axiom that is attributed to Bismarck, that is a hero of Hitler's, where he says something like, uh, you can do anything with a bayonet, but sit on it. and. Uh, you, you can cut down oppositional forces, and you must do that. You arrest the voices of defiance, lock them up. For example, Nicaraguan uh, President Daniel Otego, that's in the news a lot these days, just one re-election after jailing seven rival candidates and dozens of members of the opposition. So uh, it's not as if um, these new dictators don't use force. Uh, Ortega is so well-established, no one really thinks that this election was a, a real election. Uh, but uh, to the extent they can, these popular dictators prefer to master the optics and the images so that they attract the great masses. In other words, uh, the people who they need to fulfill their their mission. Uh, they want to satisfy uh, through manipulating the media or packing the judiciary. Now, that brings up another major difference with Hitler. Of course, uh, there's the genocide, there's the anti Semitism, but uh, that is part of Hitler's outsized, breathtaking ambition to uh, have his country take charge of the continent itself and to change history for a thousand years. Uh, That's a main reason why uh, Hitler is is so different from some of the uh, dictators today. I think you could look at Franco or Mussolini. Mussolini would have been in power much longer uh, as a popular dictator had he not been forced into uh, going to war much earlier than he wanted to by by Hitler. Uh, So uh, fascism in Italy and Germany did pioneer mass-backed autocracy, but uh, I think there are certain pressures in in, in our century that have accelerated this danger uh, that we need to think about. Uh, I, I, I like to refer to them as strong men we haven't had many women who are kind of nutty enough to go out in the middle of a crisis and tell people that they are going to solve it all on their own. Just believe in me, back me, and I'll I'll solve all of your problems.
0: Right, but you still have this. I mean, I think one of the interesting things in your book is that that authoritarianism has increased since, has been steadily increasing this kind of... Uh, top-down thing thus breaking bringing in this kind of populism um it was interesting too you also mentioned the peron kind of Peronism in argentina he learned from hitler and mussolini and that's probably an interesting study in authoritarianism and pop how how populism operates within that and, and trying to maintain i mean it was kind of a notoriously corrupt uh political system right or Peronism.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it does indicate populism. There are different definitions of populism. I'm sure you won't be surprised to hear. Uh, The common definition is uh, anti-elitism. A more uh, general, broader definition is uh, anti-otherism. That is, um, uh, you you define yourself as the nation, as the real people. And this is often done racially or ethnically, and uh, the problem uh, is that others are coming in and taking a zero-sum number of jobs or resources. Uh, so that's used a lot uh, by these uh, populists uh, to uh, to galvanize support, uh, to uh, to to create a sense of identity by. By it's it's a negative integration. You know who you are because you're not this uh, part of the population that's trying to come in and and uh, <clears throat> and take what's not theirs. I think uh, also uh, today, uh, since Peronism and, and in this century, uh, we have a a sense of crisis and social unrest that might uh, actually. Uh, elevate the sense of, uh, of attraction of a strong man It brings a sense of urgency and a search for quick solutions. That was certainly the case with Hitler and the Great Depression, where uh, as soon as that Great Depression hit, Hitler went from like 2.7 percent in the national polls to the second strongest party, uh a year later in 1930 and then uh, to 37 percent in 1932 uh so that this sense of urgency uh, a sense that uh you know uh, why not take a risk for uh, on, on the basis of some promise uh, some some uh, person who seems to have credibility and promises that he that he can fix everything. Uh, <clears throat> the point there is that uh, belief plays a much bigger role than than does uh, reason. And uh, in in you know conditions of the pandemic that we have today, uh, poverty and inequality is growing. In the background, uh, global warming and other existential threats, all of this uh, can create a, a sense of crisis and a sense that things are out of control and a uh, kind of matrix for belief in in somebody uh, like uh, you know orban in hungary uh, uh, bolsonaro in in brazil or uh, putin in russia that uh, we need our guy we need a strong man we can't do it ourselves of course but uh, but uh, why don't we uh, uh, give this strong man, uh, control to make decisions for us. Right.
0: And that's like a perfect example of Putin, right? He comes in after, you know, Glasnost and some of these other characters really comes in as a promise, but he turned the screws on authoritarianism. If he's not an outright autocrat himself, I think he changed a lot. I mean, you could see him right in that model of, uh, the authoritarian. Wouldn't you agree with that?
1: Oh, uh, yes, definitely. Uh, and the fact is that uh, Putin, Erdogan, and Orban, uh, these are competent people who know all of this and uh, have learned from each other, have, you know, there's a sense that uh, if you just teach about uh, autocracy, if you teach about genocide and we have to try. Uh, we have to do that in the hopes that it will stem all of those but there are plenty of people who are eager to learn how to be the tyrant and and uh you know the the desire for power is so uh, so strong uh you know some people suffer from it uh more uh, than others so uh <clears throat> it is it is a a temptation uh, but it never happens without some symbiotic relationship to certain people of course there is uh, a group of uh, what you could see as aristocrats in, in an autocracy that is benefiting has power as well uh, from an autocracy and wouldn't have it in a democracy uh, but there are some people who actually uh, are quite happy trading off secure a sense of uh, security for freedom. Sure, take away the freedom; uh, it makes life less complicated. Some people don't want anything more apparently than to just uh, you know have a private life where they can uh, just to, to go through their uh, private sphere. As, as as reduced as it is, certainly uh, autocrats can sometimes uh, allow freedoms, just don't put your nose in politics. Right.
0: So you see that like autocracy. And uh, you have these populist movements. I mean, we talk about the Arab Spring, things that happened in Egypt. Uh, even in the, in the United States, there's been a recent upsurge in kind of populism. Can you talk about how that the impulse of the kind of the masses, whether it's spontaneous or organized, have changed power dynamics uh, geopolitically in certain countries?
1: Well, there was a lot of hope in uh, what we call people power, of course, uh, surging after the collapse of communism. And maybe it was as strong as ever uh, during the Arab Spring. And uh, uh, tragically, uh, what happened is that uh, many people in society, of course, uh, if you take East Germany, for example, in the uprising there, uh, you had maybe 800,000 people total on the streets demanding uh, something different. Many of them wanted to reform communism, not uh, uh, become part of the West, so that uh, you know, people just don't act collectively. They had many different reasons for uh, acting in different directions. There's a metaphor I heard recently of uh, society as all these different uh, chorals and the, all of them singing a different tune, or you know, some of them uh, looking for a strong man. Uh, it, it's a, uh, as I said, something that gains attraction in, in, in the context of, of crisis. And it, it doesn't ask for uh, hard reasoning. It, uh, I think it offers uh, the exercise of belief as opposed to enlightenment thinking. I think people are, are quite uh, capable of, uh, of, of reason uh, and uh, making choice, uh, you know, democracy depends on well-informed uh, voters but uh, these autocrats use emotions, deeper emotions, psychological uh, tricks and optics uh, so that uh, it's uh, an easier solution. Of course, many people have, have so many uh, problems on their hands anyway, they certainly cannot uh, take the energy and time to join protests on the street or, uh, or even, even vote. So uh, they, uh, they, they. Many people hope to be free of of politics and uh, concern about national politics, just through, uh, you know, so they can go about their own <clears throat> their own lives. Right.
0: I mean, in Utah, I think you wrote that it was assumed that some of these post-communist bloc countries would just move towards liberal democracy, and that didn't really uh, happen in every case. So I think that assumption uh, wasn't fit. Can you talk about kind of like the advent of media, social media and advertising in this kind of new dynamic between populism and authoritarianism?
1: Oh, that, that's a good point. I'm, I'm glad you bring up social media and the Internet. I think it's changed the way that propaganda works, perhaps, uh, certainly under Hitler and through to the, you know, to point of television. Uh, Hitler controlled what people heard and read just by controlling radio and the national borders. But with internet, there are still, of course, many uh, efforts to control that. But uh, if you can't control the internet, one tactic is simply to let thousands of opinions loose and then uh, people feel like they're incompetent to really actually make uh, their own uh, choices to filter out what's wrong and what's not, and so why not just believe in uh, in something that's most comforting? Uh, <clears throat> certainly, uh, the rise of advertising happened. Uh, quite a bit earlier. I think the first book on advertising was written something like 1913. It's a craft that, uh, that, that really went hand in hand with, with propaganda, there are similarities, uh, you know, that the advertising can also promise quick fixes, you have a sense of urgency, just use this product, Uh, everything will change. Of course, the basics of uh, a short, sharp slogan repeated often uh, the notion that if you get uh, children to buy your brand, they'll be loyal for life. Uh, And uh, uh, so that uh, the idea and the values of democracy, that is uh, of well-educated citizens who know what they're doing that's not especially prized at all by autocrats who simply want support and uh, find it much easier to uh, not to go into policy details at all, but just to use a broad brushstroke to uh, try to sweep up as many people as possible uh, be uh, in, their, in their train. Uh, certainly the principle of uh, advertising and propaganda uh, together with brute force uh, is what what autocrats uh, have used today. Looking at those we've already mentioned, they, uh, as I said, they, they, they tend to grab control of the media as soon as they can, and then start to portray their opposition as enemies of the people as as threats, as existential threats, so that uh, uh, so that uh, that's uh, uh, you know many many people will be swept along with that, and of course uh, maintaining the judiciary is important, as maintaining elections and political parties, just because it maintains the appearance of popular support.
0: Right. So that's really it. It's like. The trick is that uh, the autocrats use all of the former institutions and just change them a little bit, but keep them out as kind of a facade, a window dressing on their autocracy. Would you agree with that?
1: Yes, exactly. Exactly. It's, uh, I think it is an outgrowth of the uh, tremendous sort of valuation on democracy that took place in the 20th century. And of course, that has been growing uh, for several centuries in Europe and in North America, the idea that uh, people need to uh, make their own decisions about their government. Uh, <clears throat> but uh, these autocrats degrade the institutions while keeping up the appearance of them. They're not concerned at all with the spirit of the law, uh, uh, but but with the... Uh, with. Uh, with the letter or with the facade of the law, an important point has been made recently about uh, the importance of of norms. Uh, <clears throat> that uh, that a constitution simply will never be enough on its own to protect a population because uh, majorities uh, or minorities. Actually, a lot of these. Uh, like Hitler, uh, autocrats can take power through minority, uh, you know, a substantial minority, 35, 40 percent, and build on that once they get control uh, people giving them a chance or going along, uh, making their life easier, their their popularity will, will grow. They have ways of doing that. Uh, but uh, it's a... Um, it, it, it's something that we see rising in, uh, around the globe today, uh, the, the effort to maintain the appearance and the effort to maintain popular support as much as possible. Orban in Hungary has called this illiberal democracy.
0: And you're right. And you can kind of see that in Canada, especially with COVID happening authoritarianism in US, Canada, UK, France, there's riot, there's all kinds of public protests. So it's really, this book is very timely, considering kind of these populist uh, responses to this new authoritarianism in regards to COVID. So really came out at the right time. And you find that you talk about how both authoritarianism and liberal democracy are driven by the people. So it's really whether the people get pacified or activated to make those changes in their government. Would you agree with that?
1: I do, and and uh, you know, it's just asking more than many people are willing to do in addition to everything else in their life, the sense of crisis, making ends meet, uh, providing for their family to uh, collect on the streets and, uh, and endure uh, whatever social opprobrium or police threats, uh, so that uh, <clears throat> the the protesters in in Hong Kong uh, were amazing. I think uh, uh, you know one of the problems of protest that uh, the East Germans, for example, illustrated how to do that so well uh, that uh, none of them provoked the police into using violence. Often, uh, you know, these uh, strictly disciplined protests can be uh, thrown off when you have an agent provocateur come in and uh, start uh, y- using violence. The first uh, rocks thrown or, or you know, guns fired will certainly result in uh, the use by the police of their much greater uh, resources for for doing violence so so this thing about collective uh, popular action is is very uh, fragile and yet uh, it the the principle remains that uh, if you have enough people who agree to non comply with the dictator that uh, dictator will lose power and will uh, will eventually uh, uh, perhaps fall from uh, f- fall from power. There's another German example of that. in 1923, the, uh, the attempted I'm sorry, uh, the coup, the cop uh, pushed, that was uh, actually 1920, uh, when uh, a military uprising uh, had nowhere to go because uh, the government, the socialist government called a, a general strike. And uh, no one was there to do the bidding of this uh, military leader, and he fled for his life uh, to Scandinavia. So, so the principle certainly holds. It's just that there are many different reasons for people to act uh, in, in many different ways and often to support autocrats. Uh, rather than democracy. Now, autocrats using violence are sometimes uh, supported because of their political violence. If you can, if you think that the that the autocrat is going to use violence against your enemy and 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 finally, uh, you know, correct the score on your behalf, that's a great motivation. Uh, the display of force has its own psychological advantage. Uh, but certainly, uh, Hitler, when he went in after the communists uh, in 1933, as soon as he was uh, named chancellor, he had a great deal of of support because of the depth of of animosity and and fear of of communism that the majority had. Uh, so uh, it's it's also. Uh, <clears throat> A question here we we started to think of that comes out in this book of pillarization, that is, society is pillarized into all kinds of various uh, groupings. And uh, uh, the, there are various psychological uh, mechanisms here. For example, there is a, a recent book, uh, Light That Failed, that talks about how in Eastern Europe the sense in the West that they had everything figured out and all that the Eastern European countries had to do was follow the Western model was resented. And certainly that also we can see that in the uh, unification in, uh, in Germany since the collapse of communism, we see that uh, in the East there's been a reluctance to admit that they that they were like second-class citizens all along and that they hadn't learned anything, they don't have anything to contribute. Uh, so uh, there, there's uh, uh, various uh, ways in which uh, democracy uh, has trouble advancing because it also depends on, on bureaucracies, of course. I, I wonder why I lost you there. I can't hear you.
0: Sorry, I'm talking to myself. Uh, sorry, I turned my mic off because there was some noise in the background. So. A lot of things are happening in the world. There's this kind of populism up against a lot more authoritarianism, it seems, globally. Um, what else would you like to add or anything I missed before we wrap up this discussion?
1: I don't uh, know uh, whether I have anything else to say. I've enjoyed the conversation. I. Uh, just to emphasize that it seems that the dictatorships are learning from each other uh, how to be effective in appearing to be popular and uh, it's not only uh, that the people uh, themselves are not only in favor of of democracy uh, for various reasons so Thank you for the interview.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks for agreeing to the interview. Again, the professor's name is Nathan Stoltzfus. Title of the book is The Power of Populism and People, Resistance and Protest in the Modern World. And do you have, where's the optimal place to get the book? Is it Amazon or do you have another site?
1: Yes, I think Amazon is good. Uh, It's from Bloomsbury Books, but most people know how to get to Amazon uh, quickly. My own page is on uh, Florida State University, fsu.edu, slash Nathan-Doltzfus.
0: Okay. I'll put that in the show notes, too. I'll put your uh, contact information there as well. And uh, thanks so much for your time, Professor. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you. I enjoyed okay. talking to All right, you. cool. Stay there for a second.
0: Thanks. Okay. So that's...